with announcements out of the way, let us go ahead and uh, look at what we have to learn today. So we are in 1 Samuel chapter 25. We've been going through a series um, called The Life of David, or Shepherd, Warrior, King, The Life of David. And so we're working our way slowly but surely through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We're getting close to the end of 1 Samuel. So today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'll give you just a moment to turn there in your Bible if you're going to follow along in your, uh, in your own Bible. But if you don't have a Bible with you or you're having trouble finding it, that's fine. No pressure because we will have the text on the screens next to me. So nobody will get left behind. You'll be able to follow along. Once again, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. I will be talking about the entire chapter today. It's a long chapter for the sake of time. I'm just going to read through a section of it. But we're going to talk about the, the whole chapter today. So like I said, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Once you get there, I'm going to read from verse 14. So if you want to go to verse 14, I'll give you just another moment or two, and then we'll get started. Okay. It looks like everybody's about ready. I don't hear rustling pages as much or people fidgeting around. It looks like we're ready to go. All righty. Well... Like I said, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 25 today, and I'm going to start reading from verse 14. One of Nabal's young men informed Abigail, Nabal's wife, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed at them. The men treated us very well. When we were in the field, we weren't harassed, and nothing of ours was missing. The whole time we were living among them. They were a wall around us both day and night, the entire time we were with them herding the sheep. Now carefully consider what you should do, because there is certain to be trouble for our master and his entire family. He is such a worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. Abigail hurried, taking 200 loaves of bread, two clay jars of wine, five butchered sheep, a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them onto donkeys. Then she said to her male servants, Go ahead of me, I will be right behind you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. As she rode the donkey down a mountain pass, hidden from view, she saw David and his men coming toward her and met them. David had just said, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He was not missing anything, yet he paid me back evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, The guilt is mine, my lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My lord should pay no attention to this worthless worthless fool, Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my lord's young men whom you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm, uh, harm, you, harm my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living. 
but he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. When the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed, and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. See, I've heard what you requested and have granted your request. So as I said, we're going through this series in the life of David. Today we come across this story in 1 Samuel chapter 25, uh, which is, it, you, like I said, we're going to talk about the whole chapter today, but you should really take time later today to go and read the full chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 25, because it is a very, very interesting, uh, engaging story here. Um, but whenever I look at this story and I think about it and put myself in David's shoes, have you ever uh, had that feeling, or do you know what that feeling is like that comes along with whenever you say, that was a close one? Have you ever been in a, a situation before where afterwards you said, that was a close one? You know, I had one of those this week. I was driving, I was driving through Scott down JB Road, if any of you guys are familiar with JB Road and Scott. I was driving down JB Road, and there's this section where it has two very sharp turns, one right after the next. Uh, I mean, it's a 90-degree it's a turn right and then a 90-degree turn left as you go. And so I'm driving along, and, I, and I'm, I go, and I take that first turn, and I go to take the second one. And people do this all the time, and I typically don't, but people will cut into the lane, right? They'll, they'll, they'll take that turn a little too sharp. And I, I looked ahead of me to see if there are any other vehicles coming. I didn't see one, or I didn't think uh, that I saw one. And so I, I cut just a little sharp into the lane, and out of nowhere was this other truck coming at me. I don't know how I missed them. And so he hit his brakes. I swerved over, uh, and we were both fine. We didn't hit each other, and we kept going. And I, afterwards, I thought to myself, that was a close one, right? But anytime you're in a situation like that, whether, whether it's a near accident, whether, whatever it might be, you know that feeling that comes along with it, that feeling of, of, of getting really close on, uh, on the edge of disaster, having a near disaster situation. It's this weird mix of like anxiety as if it would have happened, but also relief that it didn't, right? But anytime you have a situation where afterwards you can say that was a close one and know just how near you were to a disaster, to an accident, whatever it might be, it is a huge sigh of relief, right? It's a great blessing anytime we get to say that. And whenever we look at this passage here in 1 Samuel 25, we're looking at a situation where David was saying to himself, whew, that was a close one. Because in this situation, similar to mine, right, where it would have been my fault if we would have hit one another, but in this situation, David was in a near-disaster situation that would have been completely of his own making. Have you ever been in something like that before, right, where you were about to make a terrible decision, but then something or someone stopped you, intervened from you making that decision, and whenever you realize what uh, what would have come about if you would have gone through with what you planned? You realize, oh goodness, that was a close one. That, that relief you get—that's what David experiences here. Because in the context of what's happening, David and his men are still living in the wilderness. They are on the run from the tyrant King Saul, who is out for David's life. They're living in the wilderness, going from place to place and town to town. And they hear that there's this very rich man named Nabal, 
who is celebrating a festival, and this would be a good time whenever you're celebrating a festival to go and lean on somebody's hospitality, right? That is how David and his men were surviving during this time. They were surviving through people's hospitality. They're also surviving, it seems, is what we can tell from what I read here, that they may, may have provided some services to Nabal in the past. You notice how the servant who went to Abigail reported how, look, they had spent time with us. They were a wall around us day and night. We never had anything missing. They, we were kept safe. So it seems as though at some time in the past, David and his men, because he's got about uh, a small army of 600 men at this time, uh, had provided some protective services, some security services to David's property, asking for nothing in return. And so now David realized, okay, so this would be a good time to maybe go and ask for a gift, for some hospitality, for the work that we had done for them. And Nabal, uh, Nabal treats them uh, horribly. Whenever they send their servants to go and ask for that help, he, he tells them to go back. He says, who is this David that you speak of, this, this son of Jesse? He says, you know, I hear a lot of stories right now of slaves running away from their masters, uh, somewhat implicitly uh, saying that David was the same because he was running from Saul as like a slave running from their master. Uh, and so he not just says no and doesn't practice hospitality, but he is bitter and, uh, and wicked in the way that he says no. So David and his men uh, mount up a party. David says, all right, strap up your swords. They're done, right? As he says in the, past, the, the section that we read, he says not one of their males will be left by morning light. So they go on a war path here. He is stopped by Abigail, and whenever he, she stops him, he comes to his senses. He realizes, that was a close one, all right? That was a close one. And that's what, so that's what David experiences here. And I think from looking at David's experience and relating it to our own life, there's some very relevant lessons that we can learn about God, how he works in our life, and then what it should do in our life wherever he works and wherever he intervenes in our life. So we're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at the near disaster itself. We're going to look at the intervention, which is the, the, the section that we read, and then what I think is the lesson to learn from it. So the near disaster, the intervention, and then the lesson to learn. Now, there are some people who just deserve to get punched in the face. Isn't that true? Right? And look, and don't, don't act like it's not true. You've met someone. You, you know somebody. and You've met someone before, you, you, and you thought to yourself, they could just really, somebody needs to sock them. Right? That, would just, that would do them and the world a lot of good. Right? Now, there are a lot of people who deserve to get punched in the face, but that doesn't necessarily make it right, does it? Right? It's one of the bases of a civilized society that we just don't go around punching people in the face because they're, just, they're, they're, they're Nabal's. Right? And that's the kind of person that Nabal was. It says several times throughout this passage that Nabal was a fool. Uh, Abigail, his own wife, says it himself. She says, don't listen to this worthless fool, she says. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows, right? And so it's over and over again, this passage just says that. Nabal was a fool. Commentators say what this passage is trying to get across to us, Nabal was a fool, not only intellectually speaking, but morally speaking, right? He was, he was a worthless fool in every sense of the word. And so he's someone who kind of, he kind of deserves someone to come and punch him in the face. But just because he had treated someone poorly or, or done something wrong, right? Doesn't mean that it necessarily made it right to get punched in the face. What David had done in the previous chapter, if you remember, in the previous chapter before this, I know it was a couple weeks ago because we had, uh, we had had a special message last week, but what David had done in, in 1 Samuel 24, it's the scene where David and his men are hiding in a cave 
and Saul comes into the cave. King Saul, as he is pursuing David and his men, he goes into the cave all alone with none of his weapons because he needs to relieve himself. He needs to go and use the restroom. As the text would literally say, uh, cover his feet, right? So King Saul goes into the cave where David and his army are hiding, but they're just deeper in the recesses of this cave. He goes in there to relieve himself. And David's men tell David, this is the moment, right? Look, he is all alone. He is absolutely vulnerable. This is the moment that God promised to you that he was going to hand your enemies into your hand, right? This has got to be it. This is the time to go and get him. Now, look, and if, based on Saul's previous actions, if there's any kind of death that would have been fitting for him, it would have been one as shameful as that one, right? To go and be assassinated while he was alone in the cave using the restroom. Right? So it, it seems as though another situation where, where this guy really deserves is coming to him. But David recognized in 1 Samuel chapter 24 that just because it seemed as though everything w- w- was perfectly set up for him, that it would not have been right to practice vengeance with his own hand. Right? He, he recognized that in this moment, wherever he, if he would have gone against King Saul, taken his life, that he, what he would have been doing is taking God's plan and then trying to wrestle it under his control. He was trying to, that would have been taking what God was doing and then try to put it into his own hand there. He realized this is not the way. David's men, though, were ready to go. And in the text, it actually says in the Hebrew, it says that David uh, tore his men apart with his words. In other words, he, he tore into them, right? He had to, it, it took every verbal power that he had to stop his men from going and killing Saul. In other words, from practicing restraint. Now, here we have another situation with, with Nabal, right? To go back to Nabal, the fool, the guy who really deserved what he had coming to him, but it doesn't necessarily make it right. We have this situation with Nabal. Nabal is a very Saul-like figure. Nabal, like Saul, is a fool. Nabal, like Saul, is a man who uh, does not respect God, does not follow his law, is not righteous. And Nabal, just like Saul, is a man who just treated David very unjustly. Right? David was, was experiencing, experiencing great injustice in his treatment from Saul and how after all of his years of service, Saul is now trying to kill him. Right, And then here you have Nabal, who very similarly, David had provided selfless service to him. And then now whenever David was, David was in a time of need, Nabal, this Saul-like figure, instead responds to him, responds to his good with evil. He responds to his service with inhospitality in hospitality, right? He, uh, he treats him unjustly here. But in contrast to the previous episode in chapter where David practices restraint, this time he's ready to go scorched earth on Nabal. This time he, he says to his men, strap up your swords. They, like I said before, they are done. Not one of their men will be left with morning light. And here's what I think about whenever I, whenever I look at this story here. And David just snapping and ready to go and, and cause all this bloodshed. And in, in other words, to wipe out an entire family, an entire household. It makes me think about something. You know how, have you ever been in a situation where you lost your temper at somebody, but it wasn't really about them, right? Have you ever been in a situation like that before? Maybe your boss at work was being a jerk to you, 
or, or, or someone else, and then you go home and, and a sibling or maybe a spouse, a roommate, whoever else, says something to you in just the right way that all that anger and all those feelings that you are carrying and harboring against this other person now, just because of what they said, like, it, it, like, it's like a needle in the balloon that makes it pop, and now all that rage goes out against them. Have you ever been in a situation like that before or done that? Or maybe you've, ever, maybe you've been tempted to do that before, right? I think that's what's happening with David here. I think David's rage, ready to go and just wipe out Nabal and his entire household, it isn't really about Nabal. Instead, what it's really about is all of the, the hurt it's about all of the injustice. It's about all of those feelings that's been welling up in him from what he has been experiencing from Saul, right? Because, in other words, what would cause him to go and act like that? If you remember from several chapters ago, it, Saul was the guy who would wipe out entire households because of personal grievances or because he could not control his own temper. And now here David is ready to act in the exact same way. Go and wipe out an entire household. Why? Because I think that was it. Because he was, he was dealing with all the injustice. He was dealing with the difficulty, the conflict, the suffering that he was going through because of Saul. And now he's here face-to-face, so to speak, with a Saul-like figure. And on this guy, for whatever reason, that restraint that he had before, he doesn't have here. And he's ready to go. He's ready to destroy him. And so that causes this almost near-disaster situation where he's ready to, where he almost causes all this bloodshed, which would have been a major stain on his reputation going forward into his kingdom. What, what kind of king and how effectively would he have been able to rule with this on his record, right? It would have been incredibly undermining to the legitimacy of his rule. And here's the thing, even though we don't have small armies ready to go and vanquish our enemies, I think that we can very often act in, in, in the exact same way. I think that we very often can, in response to being sinned against, lash out against someone and, and sin right back against them or, or, or sin against someone else near us, right? Because of what has been done to us, we then respond in rage or we respond in frustration uh, and in sin going right against someone else. And whenever you think about this situation with David and Nabal here, think about what is the cause of this near disaster situation? What was the real cause of it? I think if we said Nabal was the cause, then we would be pointing our finger at the wrong direction. In a sense, he is, because it is his, his foolishness that, that causes the scenario. But think about it. Was David forced? Did David have to respond in that way? Especially, should he have responded in that way? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The cause of this near-disaster situation where there's going to be all that bloodshed, that, that blot and stain on David's reputation is not, cannot be attributed to Nabal, but to David's decision. You see, Nabal was just the, the stimulus that David then responded to in an extraordinarily sinful way that, that set up this near disaster situation. It was not the fool, but it was David's foolish response that caused this situation. It was David acting just like Nabal. And acting just like Saul, becoming a fool himself in his response to what had been done against him. And so here's the first big point that I want us to take away from this, which is this. Beware of sinning in response to being sinned against. 
Beware of sinning in response to being sinned against. This is such a practical lesson that I think that we need to pull out of the story. I know, I know it's difficult because what David's going through here is so far removed from anything any of us will ever experience, right? But there's this important lesson to learn because you are going to be sinned against. How many of us have already been sinned against before, right? So you have before and you will be again. And so if we can take this lesson out, there's so much practical good comes out of it. Just think about this. In your marriage, right? if some of us can learn this lesson today, 99% of the conflicts in your marriage would be done right now. In your marriage, how often is the conflicts that we experience based out of because one of the spouses, whichever one, in my, in my, some days it's the man, some days it's the woman, right? Maybe the husband had a really hard day. And he says something to the wife in a sharp tone, right, that, that it was not right. It does not make it right. But he says something in a sharp tone. And instead of providing a gentle response that then, right, extinguishes that flame, she responds in greater measure. And then he responds in greater measure. And then, there, and there, then there's that bitter silence between them and staying apart from one another, just letting that conflict fester between them, not actually dealing with it until it's, it has to be dealt with. And then it's an explosion, of emotion, rage, hurt, bitterness, whatever else that was held on to, and there's this fight, right? Whereas instead, if we could learn to do this in our marriages, and this goes both ways in husband, husbands and wives, if we could learn to do this whenever our spouse sins against us, though that does not make it right, right, and it does not justify their sin, we must not sin in return with passive aggressiveness, with sharp words, or, uh, or, or whatever else it might be. Right? Maybe, you know, sometimes, you know what it is? It's maybe not uh, something directly against them, but it's, it's then talking about them to your friends and complaining. Being sinned against does not justify us then sinning in return. Here's the thing I know that sinning in response to sin is often understandable. You were hurt, and so it's, it seems like the human thing to do to lash out and hurt. But though it is often understandable, it is never justified. Right, so this, this applies to our marriages. This applies to, uh, to parents. Those of you guys who are raging children, this applies to your workplaces. Uh, how much, how much uh, more peace, how much more harmony, you know, whatever else, or just how much could your workplace be improved if you were the person to break that cycle of sin? Right? People, bosses, coworkers, and whoever else sinning against one another all day long through passive aggressiveness, through backstabbing and talking about one another, through, through sharp words and undercutting statements. You could just break that cycle by saying, I will not sin in response to being sinned against. Let's speak corporately as a church. As we, as a, as a Christian church, holding on to biblical truth, continue to be marginalized in our society, and as we are being sinned against by the world around us, and as we will most likely continue to be sinned against, it is all the more important that whenever we as a church corporately are sinned against, that we do not then sin in response to it. It is so important that whenever we experience the world using the weapons of the world against us, that we do not then take the weapons of the world and use it right back at them. You see, I think that would be acting like a fool. That would be acting like a Nabal, like a Saul. Beware of sinning in response to being sinned against. So practically what this means, how you live this out, is by doing this, examining yourself before you act. Examine yourself before you act. This is going to take time to do. 
myself, we're all still working on it in one degree to another. But learning how to become the kind of person who can pause even just briefly between the stimulus, like I said, which was from navel, which was navel for David here, and that response. Because in that moment, no matter how brief it might be, or if it's a period of time that you have to reflect upon, you have a choice. You have a choice, you have a calling, and you have a responsibility from God given to you in that moment that you will do the right thing, that you will do the thing that is just, no matter how unjust someone treated you, that you will do the thing which is righteous, no matter how sinful someone had been to you in that moment. And then that by doing that, you'll, you'll be closer to God because of your obedience, you'll bring glory to him, and you might just happen to change the situation for the good. You can actually become an agent of good instead of just another cog in the wheel keeping it going, that cycle of sin, right? Examine yourself before you act. One of my all-time favorite, probably my number one favorite non-Christian book that's had the greatest impact on my life would be Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Have any of you guys ever read that one? It is a classic, but Viktor Frankl was a victim of the Holocaust, he was, a, he was a Jewish doctor in Austrian who was taken captive by the Nazis and brought into a concentration camp. He suffered for years in the concentration camp, saw many, many, many of his fellow prisoners die, commit suicide, do whatever else it was to, uh, to survive or just slowly wait until they died as he was living in the concentration camps. And what he did while he was there, being, being a psychiatrist, is he wanted to discover what was it that made some people survive and others not. What was it? Because he said you could see this in a person, that you could, you could tell whenever a person was finally just going to wither away and die because they had lost their hope. And it was this. He looked at the, how various people in the camp around him responded to what they were experiencing, and he discovered this, that they were all experiencing an a immense injustice, Right? They were all suffering underneath a horrible tragedy that none of them had chosen on their own and that none of them deserved to go through. But despite all of that, he recognized that some people chose, though all their freedoms have been taken away, to hold on to that one freedom that they had left, which was to choose their response to what they were going through. He wrote this in his book. He said, Dostoevsky once said, there's only one thing I dread not to be worthy of my sufferings. These words frequently came to my mind after I became acquainted with those martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. It can be said that they were worthy of their sufferings. The way they bore their suffering was a genuine inner achievement. It is this spiritual freedom which cannot be taken away that makes life meaningful and purposeful. So no matter what you are going through, no matter what is done to you, there is that one choice that is left. No matter how much control and choices are taken away from you, there's that one decision, that one last freedom that is left, that, is very, that as Frankel says, continues to make life meaningful and might even help you to survive, which is that freedom to choose how you then respond. David did not examine himself. David let go of that, that freedom to choose how he would respond to that situation and instead acted like a beast, acted like an animal. Because, you know, animals... They don't have that. They just have stimulus and response. But only people made in the image of God, right, with a rational mind and a spirit, have the, have the freedom to choose how you will respond. And so remember that because sinning in response to sin is never justified, examine yourself before you act. Practice it. It might take time. You're going to catch yourself responding a lot without examining yourself. But whenever you catch yourself doing that, well, then still go back and examine 
pray with God, see, okay, where did I go wrong? How did I not pause and help me to do it in the future? And by practicing a little bit over time, marginal improvements, years down the road, you might see yourself who actually has control, who actually, had, who actually regularly exercises that last freedom, that spiritual freedom like Frankel talks about. Let's look at the intervention. What is it that stops David in this moment and makes him come to his senses, that makes him say to himself, whew, that was a close one, right? David is about to commit this act, which, like I said, would delegitimize his future kingdom. Here's God's chosen king. Here's the king through which God was promising to establish an eternal dynasty, right? Uh, to the, through which this, this kingdom, God was going to bring his kingdom and his Messiah how delegitimizing and what a blot it would have been for David to go into his kingship and establish his kingdom with this on his record, right? But that is what he is going to do. He is determined, and it seems as though nothing and no one can stop him. We can say David was, was a type A guy. <laughs> David was type A. Uh, he, he, is a, he is a warrior, right, with many, many, many victories in battle. And so this is the kind of guy who you, you can imagine, once he's got his mind set on something, it's pretty hard to change it. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever met someone like that? Take that, multiply it times 10. That's probably more what David was like, right? And so here's David. He's got his mindset. He's made these oaths that all the men will be dead by morning. He is on his way. And so you would assume nothing can stop him. But then God choosing to use the most surprising means, as he very often does, he uses the most surprising and unexpected person as his means to stopping David from what he is about to do. And you know who that is? It is his enemy's wife. God uses David's enemy's wife as the tool, as the agent, the messenger to intervene into what David is about to do and stop him from what he is about to do. And not just to use the most surprising means, but also the most effective. Because we, as we read the story, we can see it works. It's, none of his men could have stopped him, but here this woman does. His enemy's wife. Whenever we read about Abigail here, and as she is, she is presented in the text, as she is presented in this chapter, it describes Abigail earlier in the passage in, in a, uh, the section that I didn't read to you. It describes Abigail as being very beautiful, very intelligent, and very good. In response to her husband, who was a fool, who was no good, who was not righteous, uh, she, she is the opposite, right? Abigail is the picture of a godly woman in the Old Testament. She beautiful, good, wise, intelligent, right? And so, and we can see that being lived out in her actions, how she takes initiative where her husband drops it, how she makes right what her husband had made wrong. I mean, we, I, I wish we, we could spend just a series uh, looking at Abigail and, and godly womanhood here. But Abigail is presented as this beautiful, intelligent, and good woman. What she is presented as, if you remember, is she's presented almost like the female version of David. Because the very first time that we meet David way back early in 1 Samuel, he's presented as being very handsome, uh, intelligent, and good. And so here we have Abigail, and she's presented like she's the, she's the female parallel to David. And she even plays the role here in this chapter that David had played in the chapter before. You remember in the chapter before, it was David's men with their swords ready saying, let's go get Saul. Enough is enough. We're tired of this life on the road, right? Life on the run. This is it. And he's holding them back, right? Alone. And here is Abigail standing before David and his men holding them back alone with nothing but her words. 
She's the female David here. She's playing the role that David did in the previous chapter. And as, she, as God sends her in, she is faithful to what God tells her to do. It, it proves to be effective and stops David. Both her and David recognize that what had happened there in that moment was greater than, than just the individual participation by either one of them. Because they both recognize that this was God at work to stop David from this near disaster. They both recognize this. And whenever Abigail, in her appeal to David, says in, in verse 20, she says it a few times, but in verse 26, she says, Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed. Right? She recognized that even her own participation in this is ultimately being driven and directed by God. David himself recognizes this. He says it a few times, but he says it in verse 32 where he says, and, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. They both recognize that God is at work in restraining David from what he is about to go do and preventing him from what he's about to go do. We see God do this all over scripture. This is a theme that, you know, I'll be honest, I never really noticed or thought about until this week whenever I was studying this passage, but God does this again and again and again. He intervenes on behalf of his people very often to stop them from themselves. One, one of the most famous examples of this, I think, although we might, we might not immediately see it, is in Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of Saul. You remember Saul, the Pharisee who became the apostle Paul, right? Saul, the Pharisee, he is on the road to Damascus. He is ready to go. He's got papers from the Sanhedrin, which would have been the ruling uh, the ruling group during the time. He's got papers from them ready to go and imprison or execute all the Christians uh, in, in this area. He is on his way to go, and it is at that moment that Jesus Christ goes and reveals himself to him, right? And, and Saul is converted. In a sense, I, we always read that and see it just primarily as Saul's conversion, which that is the, what the story is about. But in another sense, I can see, I think we can see here how it is in God's grace that he intervenes at that moment. I can't help but wonder if God knew, like, that letting Saul, who would become Paul, go through with that much bloodshed, it would have been guilt that he would have carried with him and not been able to get rid of for the rest of his life, right? Like, that, that just would have been too much. And so God in his grace stops Saul right there. It's at that precise moment where he decides to intervene. That's what he's doing here with David. And that's what he does in our life so often. God in his loving grace often prevents us from becoming our own worst enemy. Those of you guys who are parents, if you've got, even if you have babies, right, even if you just have some babies, you know parenthood, and I think this is probably going to be true uh, for a long time, you're right? maybe even a too early adulthood. Parenthood is often the job of keeping your children from being their own demise. Whenever they're babies, you're keeping them from being their own demise by just stopping them from putting things in their mouth. Right? They want to eat everything that they're not supposed to eat. Uh, and it could all choke them or poison them or whatever else. And so you were just constantly stopping them from being their own demise. Then they become mobile, and they're, they're running around. They're jumping off of furniture, and they're, they're trying to run into the street and do all these different things. And so you were just constantly running out and grabbing them and pulling them or taking them off the furniture or doing whatever else it is. You're, you're still stopping them from eating things, too, at that point. Uh, I'm not sure whenever that's going to quit. But, and I assume... And I assume that, you know, even through preteens and teen years, it's not going to be quite, <laughs> quite as severe, maybe, and quite as physical, or literally pulling them out of the road. But you're still going to be guiding them in wisdom and help and talk and, and some protection and stopping them from being their own demise. God does that in our life all the time. 
God does that in our life all the time by preventing us from very often becoming our own worst enemy, like David almost became a neighbor or Saul here, or by preventing us from becoming our own demise, by stepping in and intervening in our life, whether that be through some kind of direct intervention, you know, whether it be through like the, the near disaster I had this week with that accident where we, we just happened to stop and swerve at the exact right moment, you know, like you know, maybe that was God stepping in there and, and, and he kept us from hitting one another. Or whether that be through the means of a person that God sends, sends into your life, like an Abigail, or like the servant who went to Abigail. We could, we'd, we'd be tempted to overlook that person. There's this unnamed servant, too, that God uses as well. God sends a person into your life like an Abigail who sits you down and says, hey, I, I, I see this coming, right? Or, or I think you're about to make a poor decision, a bad decision. Or I, I think that you don't realize the destination of the road that you're going down right now. They come into your life and they stop you. God works in our lives this way all the time. He does so before you become a Christian and even after you become a Christian. He, in his love and grace, he stops us. What theologians call this is God's preventative providence. God's preventative providence, working things together uh, to, to save us from often our very own worst decisions. But why does he do it? Why does he do it for David? Why does he do it for Paul? Why does he do it for us? Because of this, and this is our second big point, God's preventative providence operates on his unconditional love. That's why. David made his decision. He, made, he, he had a choice. No one forced him. He made that decision, and he deserved to reap the consequences for it. Right? He had decided to act like Saul, whom God had already taken the kingdom away from, and in that choice, he deserved to have the kingdom taken away from him. But because God's love for David was unconditional, because God's covenant with David could not be broken, he steps in to stop David from being his own worst enemy. And so many of the choices that you and I make, we deserve to experience the consequences for them, right? We made the choice. Nobody forced us into it. Even if it's, even if it's a really bad situation, like I was talking about earlier, and we think that it is the right decision, but it's not, right? It's a, it's a sinful decision. Even in those moments, we deserve to go through with it and experience any consequences that come and, and, and to even experience God's wrath. But instead, God very often stops us. Because why? Because his love for us, just like for you, is unconditional. And if you're in relationship with him, if you have been saved, then his covenant with you is eternal and unbreakable, just like it was with David. How is that possible for us, just like it was for David? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus experienced the opposite of we very, what we very often get. You see, I think that there are probably an infinite number of times God has practiced preventative providence in our life that we won't even know until we get to heaven. Right? There are so, so many times right, that he saved our skin. And we won't even know until we get there. But we don't deserve it. We don't deserve God's preventative providence. But then you look at Jesus on the other hand. Jesus who deserved nothing but God's blessing. Jesus who deserved nothing but God's favor. Jesus never sinned in response to being sinned against. Jesus never made a decision that should have that he really deserved to reap the bad consequences for. So Jesus, who, who, who had never done what we've done, received the thing that we haven't received, which is instead of getting favor and instead of receiving blessing for all the right decisions he made, he experienced the curse that we should have received. Wherever he went to the cross, Paul says that he became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
You see, Jesus experienced the opposite of what we get. He experienced what we usually deserve. What we all deserve because of our sinful choices, because of our rebellion, because of our choosing to act like fools. He experienced it on the cross so that because he swallowed up God's wrath and because he, he paid our debt, he suffered our penalty. Now, whenever we are in him and we are in his covenant, our sins have been washed away by his blood. We have been, uh, we have been welcomed and adopted as God's children by Jesus's act. Now, because of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, whenever, though we deserve to experience the consequences, God very often prevents us from going through with whatever our choices would have brought about. Now, no matter what we go through in our life, even whenever we do get ourselves into a mess and we do get ourselves into a disaster, even in the midst of that mess and that disaster, we are still not outside of God's unconditional love. Even still, then in that moment, he loves us. Even still in that moment, we are in his covenant. We are in his hands. Why? Because of Jesus's work. Because Jesus experienced the opposite of what we get. We receive, uh, we receive a preventative providence. We experience God's unconditional love, but Jesus experienced a bitter providence. That way, nothing can separate us from God's love. I'm going to have to skip to the end here because I'm running out of time. But I just want us to consider what is the lesson that we should take away from this story and apply to our life. Wherever you continue on and read in, in this story here, this seems to be one of those episodes where David really, really took this to heart. Have you ever experienced something before? Uh, have, you ever, have, have you ever been taught a lesson in your life that for, for whatever reason, because it was, it, it was so dramatic or because it just really hit you at the right time, it was a lesson that somebody taught you or that God taught you that then turned into a virtue. Have you ever experienced that before? I experienced this once when I was in high school, and I, I was a, a senior on the football team. I was our starting running back, and early in the season, I had a minor foot injury that kind of limited the amount that they wanted me to participate in practice. So I'd participate in the offensive part of practice, and then during the defensive part, I would uh, let the foot rest, trainers would take care of me, and so on. Well, what I started doing, because I wasn't having to participate in the defensive part of practice, I didn't play defense, is I would just go over to the side, far away from where practice was happening. I'd sit in the golf cart with my leg up, you know, chit-chatting with the trainers, talking to everyone else, having a good old time while the rest of my team was practicing. After a couple weeks of doing this, my head coach, Tommy Battle, my head coach took me aside, and uh, he didn't tear into me like David did, but, but he had a serious talk with me, and he said this. He said, you know, he said, Aaron, I understand that you don't play defense, and we're not going to put you in a defense. We want you playing running back. I know that you have nothing to do in that part of practice. He said, I know that you need your foot to rest. He said, but Aaron, you're not just a running back. You're a leader on this team. And you need to be there with them. Even if you're just standing on the side, you need to be right there with them. And there was just something about that moment, the words he used, the way that he talked to me in this very over a side by ourselves in the very private moment, that it stuck with me. And that lesson became a virtue where I started to learn, okay, being a leader means being with the people that are following me, right? It, mean, it, means, it means not being over to the side. It, mean, it means being with them, right? It was a lesson that turned into a virtue in me. And I think that that is something that happens in David here. He seems to take this to heart. He takes it to heart so much. At the end of the story, we discover that, that Michael, David's wife, Saul's daughter, uh, is no longer married to him. We don't, it doesn't say why either Saul took, him, took Michael away, forced her to divorce David, or once he was in the wilderness, she, she left him by her own choice. But David is, is no longer married to Michael, and he takes Abigail as his bride uh, after Nabal dies. And to me, commentators argue over this, and 
and maybe my own reading you, you can disagree with, but that's okay. To me, one thing that that says is that David recognized this is the kind of person that I want in my life, right? That's the kind of lesson, like the way that God used her is something that I want as a constant reminder to me so that I will remember to always not sin in response to being sinned against, to examine the moment, right, to, and, and to choose the right and the just response. You see, I think this lesson turned into a virtue for David, and I think that we ought to do the same whenever we reflect on God's preventative providence in our life, and we look at all the times that he has restrained us. We look at all the times that he has saved us from our own worst decisions. We look at all the times that he's still been merciful to us despite the ways that we lash out or despite the ways that we sin in response to being sinned against and all, and all the times that we go down the wrong road. I think what this passage one of the things that it should do for us is that it should cause us to examine our own lives then and then let God's preventative providence turn into the virtue of being people who can practice self-restraint. Does that make sense? Whenever God holds you back, it should turn into a lesson of, okay, how can, how can with the help of his spirit this turn into a virtue in me where I can practice self-restraint in the future because of what he has done in my life? You see, because whenever we look around at our life and we look around at society, if we can have a whole community of people living in Lafayette, if we can have a whole society of people living in our country who are people who, in order to live rightly and in order to live justly, it does not require external restraints, but because they can practice self-restraint, when that's a society that can flourish, that can be, have freedom and liberty, right? And one where, where righteousness and justice is done, not because it is mandated by any outside force, but because God has made a people who have righteousness and justice in their hearts, who practice self-restraint and do the right thing because he has transformed them by his work, by his providence. Remember, Jesus experienced that bitter providence so that you can be saved and so that you can be changed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we praise you, Lord, for all the times in our life that we can look at and say, yeah, that was a close one, if not for you. We can look at the times in our life that you sent us an Abigail, that, that, you, that you sent us someone, Lord, maybe if it was even the most surprising or unexpected person to be an agent of your providence, Lord, and we just praise you for these times. And we, we praise you as well for all the times that we don't even know about yet, the, who, the innumerable amount of times that you, that you save us and that you, in your preventive providence, stop us from being our own demise or being our own worst enemy. Lord, we thank you for these, and we just ask that, it, that these lessons and these experiences would... would um, soak down into our hearts, and that they would change us. They would make us people like Viktor Frankl talked about who hold on to that last spiritual freedom, even if any other freedom is taken away. Lord, that we would always respond in righteousness even whenever we experience uh, injustice. Lord, let us look at Christ, be saved, and be changed. We pray this in his name. Amen.